The Truth News Network. When the leader of the free world is better at backing up than he is at looking forward. When the courts won't hear the truth. When a sitting congressperson openly calls for violence. Where do you turn for clarity? You turn to the truth. TNN, the Truth News Network, and Dan Newman. Good morning to everybody. Welcome to TNN Live. Most of you that are listening in, if not all of you, you read regularly our stories posted at truthnewsnet.org. And I want to say thank you for that. The last three days, we're over a million readers of our stories. It speaks more about you than it does about us. It speaks about the fact that more and more Americans are finding we can't trust the media, that even the ones that have been represented to be, you know, real news sources, fact finders, homes of fact checkers to make sure everybody else complies with the truth. When in fact, the fact checkers folks are in the tank, every one of them from the far left side of our news industry. They like to be called the legacy media. Donald Trump called them fake news. However you want to couch it, you're smart enough for yourself. And I want to, I want to say not so much uh, patting ourselves on the back as patting you on the back and saying, You're seekers, you're hungry, you're looking, you accept nothing but the truth. That's what we have got to do if we want to stall this horrible situation that finds us sliding down a deep, 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 deep hole, going to only God knows where. But I could say this, wherever we are headed right now is not in a good direction. So what are we going to dig into today? Of course, one of the most controversial things is anytime there is a Supreme Court vacancy and whoever the president is nominates somebody to fill a vacancy, that's what we're in the middle of right now. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, longtime justice on the Supreme Court, passed away and uh, that was filled. And then, of course, now we have a retiring Supreme Court justice, Judge Breyer. President Biden has a nominee that's up. And of course, the nominee, he touted for, I guess, months and months in his campaign that if a Supreme Court vacancy appeared during his presidency, he was going to fill it with a black woman. And of course, everybody on the left just went bonkers. They're excited when they found out that Justice Breyer was going to retire. That meant Joe Biden could follow through with his promise. Now, here's the only problem I have with that. I have several problems, and we're going to get into that in just a moment. But the big problem is, from the very beginning, do you know any time there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court, any court in the nation, for that matter, federal court, what whoever is going to confirm a nominee that's presented to them to fill those spots That objective is to find the most qualified person on the planet to fill that spot. Joe Biden, by saying, by promising only that he was going to nominate a woman of color and it was going to be a woman, his two criteria. And so when he said that and he promised that, you know what he did? he eliminated about 95% of attorneys, judges, 
other people serving in other capacities regarding the, their potential credibility to serve in that post. And so the criteria became only, literally, folks, became only. It has to be a woman, and she must be of African-American descent. So what does that say to the nation? I'll just capsule it and tell you quickly. What it means is the President of the United States nominated a woman, not based on the facts that she is the best person in the nation for filling that spot. That didn't even enter his mind. It may have, but that's not why he nominated this nominee. He nominated her because he promised he would nominate an African-American woman. And you know what they call that? All over Washington, D.C. even. They call that all around the United States. Choosing someone to fill any public position, or for that matter, any high-level private position, making a determination of filling that spot based upon a person's race or religion or nation of origin is racist. So this nominee, nobody wants to talk about this. It cannot be defeated, this thought. She being his nominee is racism execution of pure racism. Now, she may be very worthy of this position. I am not one of those 100 people that make that decision, United States senators. I'm not even talking about that. I'm not even talking about her qualifications. The two she was chosen, the two that were used to choose her are her skin color and her um, biological status. (laughs) almost said the fact that she's a woman, but we can't even do that now. When she was asked in confirmation hearings if she could explain what a woman is, she simply answered the question from Senator Ted Cruz. Nope. She can't explain that. So, I, you know, we, we get caught up in all of this um, situations where everything has to be politically correct when we speak. We can't even call her a woman. I don't know what's going on, folks, but we got to get to it. So we are going to deal with this Supreme Court nominee, and today's the last day of the Senate hearings on her nomination. The other big things we're going to weigh into, our economy, spending by our U.S. government, and of course the inflation that we're already in every area of our lives we're experiencing at epic and record levels that we've not seen before. We have a war going on. In Europe, Ukraine invaded by Russia. Lots of news coming out of that, so stick close. And then we're going to talk about our energy situation. And, of course, that ties into what's going on in Ukraine. It also ties into what's going on with our economy. So we've got a busy day ahead. And in the middle of all of this, I want to tell you, I want to introduce you to something that is very, very important to you and your family economically. It's out there. I'm not even going to give you a tease and tell you what it is. But you're not going to want to miss this. It's an opportunity of a lifetime. And when I tell you about it, it's going to blow your mind. All that and more today at TNN Live. So where do we start? 
Where do we start? Well, let's do this. Let's talk about what's the 900-pound gorilla in our room today. It's about the nomination of Ketanji Brown-Jackson to fill Justice Stephen Breyer's position on the Supreme Court when he retires, supposedly at the end of this Supreme Court session. It's not so much about Ms. Jackson, and I'm going to use the pronouns that seem to befit this kind of conversation. I'm not going to go into the politically correct stuff. We don't go down that road. She's female. She's a woman. The way it's being covered in our media, one of the fiercest political fights in Supreme Court history, it still rubs Republicans and liberal media members alike, and it happened more than three years ago. Although this nominee, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, is the judge facing questions up on Capitol Hill, remember Justice Brett Kavanaugh and the sexual assault allegations made against him? Once again, folks, he's center stage in this confirmation hearing. I think it just shows the media's level of bitterness and disgust and disappointment that a smear campaign didn't work. That's from Newsbusters managing editor Curtis Houck. What I often heard when the media would in 2018 and the years since repeatedly use the word credible or credibly accused to describe Brett Kavanaugh. You remember this whole thing? And they're calling the the allegations made against Kavanaugh back then by Blasey Ford. Remember that? That he had tried to rape her when she was in high school. They're calling it the news media. MSNBC, CBS, NBC, ABC, CNN. They're calling those allegations against him credible and that they are still credibly tied to Brett Kavanaugh, which is a blight on his being a Supreme Court justice. In 2018, let's do a little history. Christine Blasey Ford. She accused Brett Kavanaugh of trying to rape her at a high school party. That happened supposedly back in the early 1980s. Of course, Brett Kavanaugh denied it. And emotions just really, I've never seen a nominee get so upset as he did. Ford, don't forget this, those mainstream media outlets apparently have. Ford was unable to produce any corroborating witnesses or any evidence for her claim. Couldn't say when or where the attack happened and couldn't prove she and Kavanaugh had even met. They did go to school together, but that's a different story. Nevertheless, she was widely supported in the press by Democrats, of course, while Republicans in conservative media cried foul and said Kavanaugh was getting railroaded. He was eventually very narrowly confirmed, and that episode remains one of the bitterest in recent American politics, one of the the most bitter of all time in politics, as evidenced by Republicans and liberal media that are still litigating the Kavanaugh hearings during these hearings this week. Republicans like Ted Cruz, Senator Lindsey Graham, have accused Jackson she wouldn't be treated They assured her she wouldn't be treated like Democrats treated Kavanaugh during his confirmation hearings. 
Liberal media figures have, as MSNBC's Noah Rothman put it in commentary, taken the GOP's bait. I hope Jackson gets treated differently than people who have been credibly accused of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Well, guess where that came from? It came from The View, co-host Anna Navarro. She said that earlier this week on ABC. So, on The View, after her co-host, Sonny Hostin, noted that Clarence Thomas and Kavanaugh have always denied the accusations against them, Navarro sarcastically said, of course they did. So, Ely Mistal fumed on Twitter that Republicans were angry that Kavanaugh was credibly accused of attempted rape. Credibly accused. Of course, if a Democrat credibly accuses anybody, a Republican, about anything, just because it's a Democrat that's throwing out the accusation, it's automatically considered to be politically correct as true. Credibly. Credibly. So the very first reason that Jackson, at least so far, has not received the Kavanaugh treatment is that she has not been credibly accused of sexual assault. That came from Slate Magazine's Mark Newell. The term credibly was also invoked in articles and columns in outlets like Vanity Fair, Salon, and the Washington Post, among others. Far-left MSNBC host Joy Reid. My wife told me about this. I didn't see it. She fumed that Republicans just can't get over the fact that two of their six right-wing justices, Clarence Thomas and Kavanaugh, are tarred by credible allegations of sexual offenses against women. And so on our show yesterday, Joy Reid incorrectly said Kavanaugh had been accused of rape. That wasn't the accusation. It was attempted rape that Blasey Ford said was the problem. But the truth doesn't matter to these left-wing pundits. Reid also referred to three accusations against Kavanaugh in an MSNBC appearance and shared on Twitter an earlier Business Insider article that laid out a wild claim by Julie Swetnick. You remember this one? Michael Avenatti represented her. Hey, 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 he's in prison for, what, 20 years now? What was her allegation? That Kavanaugh participated in gang rapes at parties in high school. I mean, it was a bizarre story, and it fell apart. She produced no witnesses, no evidence. She later backed off her own sworn statement. In other words, she lied under oath. But Reed of MSNBC still pronounced Swetnick's allegation as credible. Fourth Watch Media newsletter editor Steve Krakauer said part of the media's insistence on continuing to use the term credible for Kavanaugh's accusation by Ford, in spite of the lack of corroborating proof, the reason they're doing it is fear of admitting fault from earlier coverage. They don't want to go back and say, we were wrong. They don't do that in legacy media outlets. They never do that. They may retract a story. They may come back and add it as additional information, but they never say, we were wrong. 
It implicates the media in the way that they originally covered the story if they begin to say years later, maybe we went a little too far. (laughs) I think that's being kind in this case. That starts to call into question their original coverage. They can't have that because they just can't have any introspection about this. Everything they say has got to be considered absolute, concrete, factual. Much of the media language during this confirmation hearing has imitated that of leading Senate Democrats who declared Kavanaugh was disqualified from the Supreme Court based on an accusation alone in 2018. Some said he didn't have a presumption of innocence and should have to disprove the allegations against him. Now think about it. She accused him of attempted rape. How in the H can a guy go back and disprove something that allegedly occurred 30-plus years ago. Legacy media, they know that can't be done, and that is a weapon they use. Because it can't be done, they can pretty much say anything they want to, and they do. We're not in a court of law. Now, this came from Senator Maisie Hirono, a Democrat from Hawaii. She was on MSNBC at the time. She said... We're actually in a court of credibility at this point. Another Democrat, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, she said at one point that she believed Ford because she was telling the truth. How, oh how, do the truth meters only get handed out to Democrats? Nobody on the right can say something is credibly true. Only Democrats can make that distinction. Krakauer likened the episode to some of the collapsed media narratives of the past five years, like Jussie Smollett, hate crime hoax, the Covington Catholic fiasco at the Lincoln Memorial. There's story after story where the media gets set on their narrative. Maybe it doesn't implode in the case of Brett Kavanaugh, but certainly it's not corroborated the point where you can use the term credibly accused of sexual assault. But then it just becomes the conventional wisdom, and years later, it's still the talking point. They rule the world. They want to rule the world using only talking points. Facts, truth, don't matter. It's what we want. And if we think it's right, that's all that matters. Krakauer said, there's a need at some point, like anything in life, to look inside, take personal responsibility, and in issue after issue, with Brett Kavanaugh being one of the biggest examples in recent years, the media has just decided to not look inward and along their most liberal pockets plow forward as if it never happened. Republicans have only invoked the mistreatment of their nominees to establish a favorable contrast. That's according to Rothman who wrote that in an editorial. He said their strategy is to observe as much decorum as possible to showcase the impropriety of their opponents, he wrote. Republicans are fortunate that progressives in political media seem happy to oblige. It's just one thing after another. We see it over and over and over again. So let's dig into the confirmation hearing contents. So one day after declining to define the word woman, 
Kachanji Brown-Jackson is the nominee. She wouldn't say whether Senator Ted Cruz could have standing to sue as a woman. Now, what he did, he just went down the road where she is living, and he's there in her neighborhood now, and he's talking about something that has and will come before the Supreme Court over and over again in the near and probably long term. Yesterday, Cruz said, under questioning from Senator Marsha Blackburn, you told her that you couldn't define what a woman is. And your reason for not being able to do that, you said, is you're not a biologist, which I think you're the only Supreme Court nominee in history who has been unable to answer the question, what is a woman? Let me ask you, as a judge, how would you determine if a plaintiff had Article Three standing sufficient to challenge a gender-based rule or regulation or policy without being able to determine what a woman was. And Brown replied to Ted Cruz, Senator, I know I am a woman, and Senator Blackburn is a woman, and the woman I admire most in the world is in this room today, my mother, she said. Under the modern leftist sensibilities, this is Cruz, If I decide right now that I'm a woman, then, apparently, I am a woman. Does that mean I would have Article III standing to challenge a gender-based restriction? She wouldn't say. To the extent you are asking me about who has the ability to bring lawsuits based on gender, those kinds of issues are working their way through the courts, and I'm not able to comment on them. He continued, Cruz did, speculated on whether he could claim to be a different race and bring a case based on that race. If I can change my gender and be a woman, and an hour later if I decide I'm not a woman anymore, I guess I would lose Article Three standing, he said. Does that same principle apply to other protected characteristics? Like, I'm a Hispanic man. Could I decide I was an Asian man? Would I have the ability to be an Asian man and challenge Harvard's discrimination because I made that decision? The Supreme Court has accepted a case brought on behalf of students who allege they were rejected by Harvard due to their being Asian. In other words, what what Cruz is doing, he's going down the pathway of what they are praying when it befits a certain part of what they want in any kind of political situation, and they play the race card. They play the sex card. They play the skin color card. But nobody else can play it. You just have to lay down and just let them do their thing. What did Jackson say? She wouldn't say anything. I'm not able to answer your question. You're asking me about hypotheticals, she said. I would assess standing the way I assess other legal issues, which is to listen to the arguments made by the parties, consider the relevant precedents and constitutional principles involved, and make a determination. She also said during day three of her confirmation hearings, She never said she wasn't sure what a woman is, but that the definition depends on the circumstances. What she's doing, folks, digging a hole. She's digging a hole. And this is because it's out in the open. It's being watched around the globe. Everybody knows every word she says in response to questions. And folks, 
just a little bit. I probably watched an hour and a half total of her confirmation hearings. She continues to dig holes needlessly. And whoever coached her didn't coach her up. And at the end of the day, I don't think she's going to be confirmed. She said this, I think the overwhelming majority of Republicans will vote against her. No, she didn't say this. This is Ted Cruz later. I think her record is far out of the mainstream. You may see a couple of Republicans vote for her. And listen, it is a historic nomination. If she's confirmed, she'll be the first African-American woman on the court. That's an inspirational thing, he said. That being said, our responsibility under the Constitution is advice and consent, and we ought to demand a justice who will defend our constitutional rights like free speech, religious liberty, the Second Amendment. There's no indication. This is Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. He said there's no indication that she would do that. Cruz is pretty vocal in this. He's not the only one. Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas, he told Judge Brown that he didn't find her testimony credible. You know what I think he said? I think he got caught. She's talking about the man that they discussed, the child pornographer to whom she gave a very, very light sentence. And Cotton's talking about this guy. He said, you know what I think? I think he got caught with child pornography again and wouldn't have if he had been in prison for the 8 to 10 years that the guidelines call for back in 2013 when you first sentenced him. On Wednesday during day three of her confirmation hearing, Cotton mentioned a case involving a child pornographer named Wesley Hawkins. He was convicted of child pornography back in 2013. The sentencing guidelines for this offense call for a sentence of 97 to 121 months, or 8 to 10 years, Cotton said. The prosecutors asked for 24 months. You sentenced him to three months. We've heard a lot about this case in your three-month sentence of Wesley Hawkins, but you got another crack at him back in 2019, Judge. Then you send Hawkins back under conditions of confinement with the Bureau of Prisons for six months with additional restrictions on his computer uses. That's twice the amount of time in custody that you sentenced him to in 2013. What did Wesley Hawkins do in 2019, Judge? Oh, I don't remember, Senator. I have a lot of defendants who I've sentenced. Well, Cotton went on to note that Jackson has been asked repeatedly over the last two days about the Hawkins case. It's been in the news for days on end, he said. This resentencing happened in 2019, and now you're saying you don't have any recollection of it? Let me see if I can refresh your recollection. Cotton took out a large board showing the order that Jackson signed on April 17, 2019, adding, there's your signature over there, Judge. You really don't remember? She maintained that she didn't remember and said, Senator, that's a very, very common thing that judges do. I understand you've done it a lot, Judge, but none of them have been the centerpiece of your hearing for the last two days. Do you really expect this committee, this is Tom Cotton talking, do you really expect this committee to believe that you don't remember what happened in the Hawkins case? 
Yes, Senator, I do expect you to believe. That's my testimony. Well, I don't find it credible, Judge. It's been in the news for days and days. You've been asked about it probably more than any other case you've ever had. And I just don't find it credible that you weren't prepared for that matter in 2019. You know what I think he said? I think he got caught with child pornography again and wouldn't have if he had been in prison for the 8 to 10 years that the guidelines call for in 2013 when you sentenced him the first time. Two days ago, in day two of her confirmation hearing, Jackson would not answer the senator's question regarding whether she believed the U.S. should strengthen sentences for child pornographers. There's some ugly things coming out. And listen, folks, confirmation hearing for any kind of federal appointment, they're a big deal. But the United States Supreme Court, come on now. That's the most important positions because these are the ones that determine nine of them weigh in. They have the high authority, the highest authority in the nation regarding settling matters under the law. And therefore, when we have an opening and there's a nominee, that person needs to be grilled and they need to share what their thoughts on specific matters are. And of late, it's been normal to say, well, I can't comment on that because I'm certain I'll have a case come up and people would look back and see that I had an opinion and that would disqualify me for agreeing with or denying with my fellow justices. Yeah, she's right. And conflict on cases happens all the the time on federal cases and judges, and by the way, justices will recuse themselves for those reasons. Conflict of interest. I, you know, I may have may have personally handled the case like that, or may have been involved in this case that worked its way up through the appeals process and ended up here. It's not fair for me to be involved in it. But they feel like when they come, they don't have to answer questions about their personal opinions. And if we go there, folks, there's no need to even have confirmation hearings. Just put anybody on the court that gets nominated. Because if they're not going to tell those who are supposed to confirm, if they don't tell her what they think, how are they going to know? How are they going to have a factual basis on which to determine whether or not to vote for confirmation? So we're going to wrap this thing up. There are are about a dozen things that are very important in her confirmation hearing. We'll just rip through them real quick. Ted Cruz yesterday, Jackson said she would recuse herself from the Harvard University affirmative action case if she's confirmed as a Supreme Court justice. Senator Lindsey Graham and Democrat Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, they got into it, folks, about dark money in Supreme Court politics. Whitehouse took shots at the Federalist Society for its influence over the nomination of conservative justice, while Graham criticized, quote, the troubling role of far-left dark money groups on the Supreme Court and the political process overall. Seems like they kind of agreed on some of that. And it was a, a really nasty back and forth. Then, in a tense exchange yesterday, 
Cruz told Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin he should testify alongside the nominee after Durbin told her not to bother responding to Cruz's question. There's no point in responding, Durbin said to her. He's going to interrupt you. If you don't like your witness's answers, you're welcome to provide your own, Cruz said. She is declining to answer the question. And Chairman Durbin, if you want to join her on the bench, feel free to do so. Fourth, Cruz made headlines on Tuesday when he named books taught at the Georgetown Day School related to critical race theory. He asked Jackson if she agreed with the books being part of the curriculum, given that, and we reported this yesterday, she serves on the board of the school. Jackson said she doesn't have control over the books that are taught. I don't know, she said. The board does not have control of the curriculum. The board does not focus on that. She also said critical race theory doesn't come up in the worker work that I do as a judge. That's horse hockey. It does come up and it will come up. Fifth, under questioning from Senator Marsha Blackburn, Tennessee, this was on Tuesday, related to transgender issues, Jackson declined to provide a definition of a woman. Do you agree with Justice Ginsburg that there are physical differences between men and women that are enduring? The senator asked her. Senator, respectfully, I am not familiar with that particular quote or case, so it's hard for me to comment, she said. Blackburn then asked her to provide a definition of a woman. Can I provide a definition? No, Jackson said. I can't. Number six. Under questioning from Republican Senator Josh Hawley, Jackson defended an essay she wrote that criticized sex offender sentencing by saying she was doing what law students do. Hawley asked her about United States v. Hawkins, a case where Jackson sentenced 18-year-old Wesley Hawkins, who had been in possession of sexual abuse images and videos involving kids, She sentenced him to three months in jail. Prosecutors initially had recommended at least 24 months. As a judge who is a mom and has been tasked with the responsibility of actually reviewing evidence, the evidence that you would not describe in polite company, the evidence you are pointing to, discussing, addressing in this context is evidence that I have seen in my role as a judge, and it's heinous, she said. It's egregious. What a judge has to do is determine how to sentence defendants proportionately, consistent with the elements that the statutes include with the requirements that Congress has set forward. And we just mentioned one case. In every pornography case that she's ever weighed in on, where she has been required to sentence somebody, in every one of them, she's ignored the minimum sentence requirements in the law. And she's never given one offender that has come before her and has been convicted. She has never given one of those people what the sentencing requirements in the law say. Every time she's blown right through those and given shorter sentences. Number seven, Senator John Cornyn, Texas, Republican, questioned Jackson on Tuesday about calling late former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and former President George W. Bush war criminals in a legal filing. 
Okay, here we go. Dodge, dodge, deflect, deflect, deny, deny. She said, quote, I don't remember that reference. I didn't intend to disparage the president or the secretary of defense. Well, if she doesn't remember the reference, how does she know she did or didn't disparage W or the secretary of defense? Number eight, several Republican senators raised concerns with Jackson's decisions in child pornography cases where she sentenced the offender to less time in prison than what the prosecutors had recommended. Senator Tom Tillis, North Carolina, asked Jackson to describe her sentencing philosophy. What I convey or did when I was a trial judge, as I sentenced people to very lengthy periods of incarceration, was you are getting your day in court. You are able to say what you want to say, but you have to sit here and listen to my reading into the record, the victim's statements in this case. We should be imposing a sentence sufficient but not greater than necessary to promote the purposes of punishment. No. No, judge, that's not what you should do. You should do, regarding sentencing, exactly what the law says. Period. Number nine, Iowa Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, ranking member of the committee, asked Jackson to share her opinion on cameras in the Supreme Court. Very controversial. I love it. I think it's necessary. I think it really gives people an inside look of the way our judicial system works. I would want to discuss with the other justices their views and understand all of the various potential issues related to cameras in the courtroom before I take a position on it, she said on Tuesday. And then finally, members of the committee and party leaders disagreed on her handling of questions about how her record at the hearing. There's been a range over time of how willing nominees are to candidly and openly and forthrightly discuss these core matters of constitutional principle in proceedings like this one and a tendency over time to allow less and discuss less, a more restrictive approach. That's from Senator John Ossoff from Georgia, a Democrat. I want to thank you because while you have prudently and in a disciplined way refrained from commenting inappropriately on potential pending case law, you have been willing to engage in a forthright and expensive discussion of these vital principles in a way that I think stands out among some recent nominees. Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell described Jackson's answers to tough questions at the hearings as, quote, evasive and unclear. She's declined to address critically important questions and questions of real concerns. First and foremost, McConnell said, is the simple question of court packing. The far-left fringe groups that promoted Judge Jackson for this vacancy want Democrats to destroy the court's legitimacy by through partisan court packing, he said. She was literally the court packer's pick for the seat, and she's repeatedly refused to reject that position. McConnell said that unlike the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Jackson refuses to rule out what the radical activists want and said she does not have an opinion on court packing. She said she does have an opinion, but she will not share it publicly. I don't know how these nominees think they can get away with it 
by just not talking about it. It's kind of like if we don't talk about it, it's like it really doesn't exist. Well, (laughs) it really does exist. It really does. We've got two more stories about this we want to bring to you. But we have one that will just bring you to tears. And that's Senator Cory Booker and his response about the nominee, his feelings about her personally, but more about her capabilities as a justice. He pointed to racial, racial things. You're going to hear straight from the horse's mouth, and that's not a racial connotation. I'm talking about Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey, but straight from his mouth, you're going to hear what he thinks about this next. A divorce lawyer should be more than just a lawyer. Divorce is like no other experience, especially for guys. At Cordell and Cordell, our clients want a partner standing next to them. Someone they can trust. Someone who understands where they are and how to get them out. We are the attorneys of Cordell and Cordell. We are advisors and advocates for men before, during, and after divorce. We are Cordell and Cordell. A partner men can count on. To schedule your appointment, give us a call or visit us online at CordellCordell.com. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language like French, Spanish, or Russian, but thought it would be too difficult and time-consuming? Then go to Babbel.com and try it for free. Babbel works because it's built around real life. It teaches you everyday practical conversations that you will actually use. In 15 minutes a day, you'll be on your way to speaking a new language in just a few weeks. Babbel uses a modern conversation-based technique that makes language engaging, fun, and memorable. It starts by teaching you words and phrases. Then, sentences gradually get more complex. Soon, you're practicing short conversations about real-life topics. Babbel is created by language experts who use the space repetition method to help you learn quickly and remember what you learned. With Babbel, you can speak a new language. Babbel, language for life. Celebrating 10 million subscriptions sold. Now try Babbel for free at Babbel.com. Just go to Babbel.com and start learning a new language today. That's Babbel.com. B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Out for some lays and you face a test. Which tasty chip will be the best? Sour cream and onion smoky barbecue. Cheddar, sour cream, salt and vinegar too. You sample them all cause the crisp is so good on your lips. Yeah. You left your wallet at home. But now you have a new best friend. The many flavors of Lay's chips. One taste and you're in love. The Truth and Dan Newman goes together like beans and rice, brats and kraut, you and the future. TNN, The Truth News Network. You can keep the brats and kraut, but I'll take beans, rice and beans. I love that. South Louisiana, we had that all the time at my house. In fact, in South Louisiana, there's rice with every meal, three meals a day. Breakfast, you say? Oh my gosh, folks. Leftover rice, you just put it in the refrigerator, cover it up, cover it up, and uh, just keep it after you have it left over from dinner the night before. And when the kids get up, just scoop it out in a bowl and put a little bit of milk in it just to get it wet while you stick it in the microwave and you warm it up and then you pour some more milk on it, it and sugar, of course. And if you got it warm enough, butter on it. Talk about better than frosted flakes. It's a great breakfast recipe. You'll enjoy it. 
always have. Um, and sometimes when, you know, things are not so good economically, it's good to find something that is inexpensive. I didn't use the word cheap. I said inexpensive and substitute it. And in this case, rice for breakfast, it'll save you a bunch of bucks because rice is not expensive. I don't care where you, where you live. It's not expensive. It's easy to get and it's easy to cook. And you just stick in the leftovers in the fridge and feed the kids for breakfast the next morning and your husband or your wife, whoever the cook is, you got that recipe (laughs) absolutely free. Back to the hearings. Senator Cory Booker, Democrat from New Jersey, known as a very emotional guy, and anytime he gives any kind of speech, in the especially when it's televised in Senate hearings, he just gets up on his bully pulpit and it becomes all kind of emotional. That was the case yesterday. And um, he had this to say to the nominee late in the day, you might want to get a hanky. Here's Cory Booker. Where's Cory Booker? Here's Cory. And I want to tell you when I look at you, this is why I get emotional. I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're a person that is so much more than your race and gender. You're a Christian, you're a mom, you're, you're, you're an intellect, you love books, but for me, I'm sorry, I, I it's hard for me not to look at you and not see my mom, not to see my, my cousins, one of them who had to come here and sit behind you. She had, to be, she had to have your back. I see my ancestors and yours. Nobody's going to steal the joy of that woman in the street or the calls that I'm getting or the texts. Nobody's going to steal that joy. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. I don't know if Senator Booker understands it, but the qualifications for a Supreme Court justice are not skin color, are not emotions, are not what you've achieved because of your race or your sex. It's about your worthiness based on legal issues alone. This is just crazy, folks. If we're going to go down this road, let's forget about confirmation hearings. Let a president appoint whoever he wants for every federal judgeship or all the federal attorneys and just don't even bring them to the Senate for confirmation. You know, that's what the Constitution says the Senate is supposed to do, but they don't abide by the Constitution anyway. Democrats don't. They don't want to abide by any of the federal laws either. So why do why do this? Why go through this arduous process just to make it look good when you have no intentions of doing this the right way? You want to be able to pick who you want regardless of anything that they have done, their background in the law, and what their capabilities are historically that justify them sitting in that empty seat when Judge Breyer, Justice Breyer, leaves the court later this year. None of what I just told you matters to them. The only things that matter, you heard Cory Booker talk about. None of those, none of those are even in the qualifications 
for a federal district judge, yet alone a justice on the Supreme Court. So now it's uh, after the hearings today, it's going it's going to be just a run to see how many Republicans are going to jump ship. That's all that ever matters on a piece of legislation or a nomination. It's how many Democrats are going to jump ship, how many Republicans are going to jump ship, and do they have enough to fill in the gaps on a big issue like this? Well, one Republican, you can book it. He's going to vote for her nomination. According to Washington Post congressional correspondent Paul Kane, Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney, he's a Republican, Mitt, Crom, uh, Mitt Romney told him that claims about Ketanji Brown-Jackson's record on child pornography sentencing are not going to affect his vote. Romney tells me the child porn angle via Hawley Cruz is wrong. It won't impact how he votes. It struck me that it was off course, meaning the attacks were off course that came from some, and there is no there, there. And then, of course, when that came out, Romney just started getting blasted. Accusations about Jackson's child's porn leniency were first leveled by Josh Hawley in a tweet thread last week when he reviewed a record going all the way back to college. Judge Jackson has a pattern of letting child porn offenders off the hook for their appalling crimes, both as a judge and as a policymaker. She's been advocating for it since law school. This goes beyond soft on crime. I'm concerned that this is a record that endangers our kids. So in other words, Hawley got into it structurally, you know, down on the meat of an issue that could be and probably will be front and center in case after case that comes before the court. And she has a very significant record of going light on child pornography cases. I got to be honest with you. Where I grew up, and I grew up in South Louisiana, pedophiles were considered to be the scourge of the earth. And don't go down the street and start talking about they have mental, emotional issues. I get all that. We need to take care of that. But they need to be in a position, if they are convicted of child pornography or other sexual situations involving kids, The law is very plain what should happen and how it should happen. We need to abide by that and not change the court. Let a judge in the the courtroom change the law by the way that sentences are, are, are put out for these offenders. If the law is too egregious, get in the middle of the process to get whoever the lawmakers are, and in this case it's federal law, it would be Congress to change the law. That's what every member of the United States Supreme Court, and for that matter, every member of the judiciary is supposed to do nationwide. Follow the law. Don't change the law from the bench. You don't have the authority to do that. In fact, if you do that, you need to be uh, kicked out of your seat, be, be impeached. And you can be. There are abundance of examples of federal judges being impeached and removed from office. This is not just a small deal. Her being so lenient on the sentences that have come for people in her courtroom 
that have been convicted of child pornography. As far back as her time in law school, she has questioned making convicts even register as sex offenders, saying it leads to stigmatization and ostracism. I don't care. That's a price that somebody pays for the choices they make. You're taking accountability out of the equation, which is that what that is, folks, is the absence of law. If there's no accountability, there's no reason to have a court or have laws. When he questioned Jackson during the confirmation hearings, Hawley centered on one particular case, one particular case in which she gave a person in possession of a child pornography only three months in prison and refused to label them a pedophile. You said to him, this is a truly difficult situation. I appreciate appreciate that your family's in this audience. I feel so sorry for them and for you and for the anguish this has caused all of you. I feel terrible about the collateral consequences of this conviction. Then, Judge, you said, pedophiles are truly shunned in this society. That's what the judge said in court. I'm just trying to figure out, Judge, is he the victim here or are the victims victims? She called the case unusual, arguing that the defense wanted probation for the offender who had just graduated high school and that she wanted to avoid quote, unwarranted sentencing disparities. When questioned by Senator Dick Durbin, Democrat, of course, Katanji said that she was following statutes set by Congress. The statute doesn't say impose the highest possible penalty for this sickening and egregious crime. The statute says calculate the guidelines, but also look at various aspects of this offense and impose a sentence that is sufficient but not greater than necessary to promote the purposes of punishment. Katanji further noted those statutes were created at a time when more serious child pornography offenders were judged based on the number of photographs that they received in the mail, adding that they made total sense before we didn't have the Internet. But the way that the guidelines is now structured based on that set of circumstances, is leading to extreme disparities in the system because it's so easy for people to get volumes of this kind of material now by computers. It's not doing the work of differentiating who is a more serious offender in the way that it used to. So the commission has taken that into account. Perhaps more importantly, courts are adjusting their sentences in order to account for the changed circumstances. But it says nothing about the court's view of the seriousness of this offense. It does. It absolutely does. Courts don't have the right to change any of the circumstances of the laws that are being broken. If it's written in the laws, judges don't have an option. If a defendant is convicted, he or she must sentence according to what the law says. She has a history regarding child pornography cases of in every one of them. With no authority to do so, reducing the sentencing guidelines written in the law. And that, my friends, is unconstitutional. And she is asking 
100 senators to send her to the highest court in the land when she's got a record of taking unconstitutional actions. You know what, though, folks? You put it in the context of American government today. Just throw it out there, federal law. The guy sitting in the White House, he tramples on constitutional laws every day, every single day. Joe Biden and probably thousands of people that work indirectly for him every day break federal law, and they're not held accountable. How is this happening? Every time somebody steps across our southern border or any of our borders without having federal invitation to do so is breaking federal law. Anybody that lets that happen on their watch knowingly and they don't enforce the law, they're guilty of committing immigration crimes. The Joe Biden administration, Homeland Security under Alejandro Mayorkas, every one of them that don't pursue enforcing the law or suborning immigration illegality. Every one of them. All the way back in Barack Obama's eight years in the White House, he told his Attorney General Eric Holder, stop enforcing drug possession, federal drug possession laws. Don't even enforce them anymore. On what authority did he do that? There is no authority in the Constitution for a president or any other member of any legal body in our government. There is no quotation mark somewhere that says everybody has to be held accountable for breaking laws and then parentheses or quotation marks except when the president doesn't want them to be enforced or a judge doesn't want them to be enforced. The law is the law. If you want to change it, that's great. Change the freaking laws. If they're too egregious, change the sentencing guidelines in the freaking law. Otherwise, you want to serve on the court? You need to make sure that you abide by everything, every jot and tittle in the law You cannot, you have no authority to change one little bitty teeny thing in it. Nobody does. And if there are accountabilities built into any federal law, everybody in the federal government has an obligation and in fact takes an oath of office to enforce those laws as they are written without going out on a limb and you trying to look inside the founders' heads to find out what they meant. If we just turn our backs on this kind of actions and just ignore it, what are we doing? I can tell you what we're doing. Willingly, we are doing away with the structure, the structure of this company, a country that has the best government structure in world history. It's been decried that. It's been confirmed through several hundred years by people around the world. Government works better in the United States than in any other country on the planet. And yet these government officials, they they may just sit and cry like Cory Booker did. But if you're going to be in service and you took an oath of office, you've got to see to it that you do everything possible that all laws are abided by. 
Speaking the truth, the left doesn't want you to hear. TNN, the Truth News Network. We may not be able to lower the cost of gas, but we can do something about how many miles you will drive per gallon. Stop by your local O'Reilly Auto Parts store today and let us help you increase the performance of your car or truck. Simple things like replacing your air filter, changing worn-out spark plugs, and using fuel injector cleaner can add up to better fuel economy and big savings. There's an O'Reilly Auto Parts store close to you that has the name brands, low prices, and people who can help. Restore lost fuel economy and eliminate rough idle with Lucas Fuel Injector Cleaner. Right now at O'Reilly Auto Parts by two and get one free. Lucas Fuel Injector Cleaner quickly cleans clogged injectors to increase fuel efficiency and help your vehicle run smooth. Lucas Fuel Injector Cleaner, buy two, get one free at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. Limit supply, see store for details. long road to go down but we're going to get there folks we've got to get there so what else do we have to deal with today well how about our economy and everything to do with it huh well i can tell you this our economy is it's just trampled on every day by our government no regard for any part of the economy except that part that they can grab more money out of and they're doing it through taxes, and they're just suborning all the rules and regulations in the way that real capitalism has worked here for 260 years, and they're saying it's evil, we don't want to do that, and then they just begin to tear it apart. And who's the biggest culprit? Well, it is the United States Congress. Everything to do with government spending has to begin not only in the Congress, but in the House of Representatives. And then, of course, if they approve a bill, it goes across the hall to the Senate. And if they approve it, it gets signed into law by a president. Well, last week, on a law, the Senate voted on a 2,741-page omnibus spending package, clocking in at a paltry price of $1.5 trillion. It was released in the middle of the night, just hours before the Senate voted on it. Now, keep in mind, that's a trillion five hundred billion dollars of government spending. When they vote on things, they're expected to know what they're voting on. At least that's the expectation of all of us back here. There wasn't a single person that read all of that 2,741-page omnibus bill. Didn't have time. It couldn't be done. But do you really think anybody did so? Even if they had speed readers, the big spenders, not just Democrats, folks, but both parties in Washington, they love keeping these big omnibus bills under wraps. In fact, they bake on it, literally and figuratively. For what it's worth, there's legislation in the Senate to fix that issue, a resolution to give members ample time to read every bill before they vote on it. It would also increase transparency and incentivize legislation to be shorter. What a novel idea. (laughs) Have everybody in Congress that votes on anything know exactly what they're voting on. Just imagine, 
What if we had one day for every 20 pages to read the bills before they were brought up for a vote? If that was the case, we would have had 137 days. That's almost four months to truly consider whether the American people's hard-earned tax dollars were worthy of all the ridiculous spending items included in this recently passed omnibus bill. We would have had 137 days for the general public to look at and find out exactly what special favors in the forms of earmarks were snuck in under the auspices of essential budgetary items. Do you think $2.5 million for biking trails in Vermont is really a spending priority? Well, that's in the bill. What about $4.2 million for the U.S. Sheep Experiment Station? Or $1.6 million for the development of equitable growth of the shellfish aquaculture industry in Rhode Island? I'm not really sure what either of these do and why it would be deemed necessary to receive millions of taxpayer dollars. I wouldn't, if I had a voice in this, I wouldn't vote for either one of those. And these are just the tip of the iceberg. The spending bill included about 4,000 earmarks worth between 8 and $10 billion. 569000 for the removal of derelict lobster pots. Huh? <laughs> $2 million to educate, digitally connect, and build roads for indigenous coffee producers in Colombia. $3 million for a fisherman co-op in Guam. $925,000 for a barn in Vermont. A barn. $925,000. Folks, it better have at least 15,000 square feet in Vermont and have all kinds of amenities to cost $925,000. A barn. $750,000 for a sports complex in Las Vegas like they don't have enough there. $10 million to demolish a hotel in Alaska. A million for workforce training related to clean energy and green building in Minneapolis. $2 million for reducing inequity in access to solar power. And it's full of one more after another of examples just like this. At one point, earmarks were banned. Why? Well, because of how corrupt the process had become. But in the big spenders in Congress brought them back under a new name. They call it community project funding. But we know it's just the same old game plan, funnel tax dollars to special interest and campaign donors. They said, Democrats said, this time's going to be different. They said by cloaking earmarks with a fancy name and requiring paltry standards like evidence of community support, they'd be able to handle earmarks calling cards, rampant waste, corruption, and abuse of our money. But as we've seen again and again, the waste has already reared its ugly head. This is the same song as before, just a different verse. At one point last year, it looked like earmarks were going to be killed. Senator Mike Lee, Rand Paul, they urged their fellow GOP members to continue to uphold the earmark ban. 20, 20 of them signed a statement promising to, quote, not participate in an inherently wasteful spending practice 
that is prone to serious abuse. Well, they won the battle in the earmark fight at the time, as the conference voted to uphold the ban. It appears with this latest spending package that many GOP senators have defied conference rules. Unfortunately, it seems that Washington politicians' addiction to spending has no bounds. Everyday Americans like you and me, we've always opposed the waste of our tax dollars and those that waste them. Rand Paul is one of the only people up there that continues to sound the bell over and over and over again. And folks, all of this kind of stuff, what it's doing, it's tearing our economy apart. I actually see a real opportunity that before we get out of this thing, at some point, even in Louisiana where gas prices are not high, I can see 6 to $7 a gallon at the gas pump. Most of that, we can blame some of it on Vladimir Putin as Joe Biden blames everything bad that's happening on someone else and he happens to have a ploy in the name of Putin. He calls our inflation problem Putin inflation, calls our gas hike Putin gas hike. He doesn't want to take responsibility for anything. Nobody holds him responsible. He's in D.C. For 50 years he's been there. He's never been held accountable for anything that he's done, good or bad. And even when he is maybe lightly involved in something that turns out good, he takes 100% credit for it, whatever it is. So we're talking about cost, 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 cost. Let's talk about just for a moment, let's talk about how the specific things in pricing affect you. Beep, beep, beep. What does that mean, Dan? Well, that's the sound of food scanned at the grocery store. and We put them in bags ourselves now because everybody has self-checkout, right? Maybe you just went in for a few things and meant to keep it under 100 bucks, but you walk away with a new case of sticker shock and fewer bags than $100 used to buy. Inflation, inflation. It's hit every link in our food chain. Now, what everybody in Washington doesn't want to talk about is they they want to go to the end person, the end company in that chain, the one at the very beginning, and place blame on them for everything, the cost of everything. The trucks that deliver food from farm to the food processor, they're charging more. They have to because of gas and a bunch of other things in the chain. Joe Biden doesn't want to talk about them. What about the warehouse? They had to because Joe Biden did what he did. They have to pay more for their people. Who's going to pay for the additional? And then you go to the retail store. That's where the grocery store bag is that you paid more for and got less. Another cost impacting your grocery bill. Nobody's mentioned this. A major jump in the price of fertilizer. You know how much more farmers are paying for fertilizer right now than they paid in 2020? Three times. Three times. You want to have food? You want to have good product, good price, uh, a, a good at the store, things that are priced good, and we actually have them? 
you got to have fertilizer. It costs farmers three times more. Lance Lillibridge, he's president of the Iowa Corn Growers Association. He said, I think folks tend to forget the mainstream media talking a lot about it. The cost of farming went up. You're going to see that in the grocery store. Well, that points the finger at the farmer, of course. And that's very frustrating because the farmer does not set the price for corn or beans or cattle or hogs or chickens. We don't set the price of fertilizer. We buy at retail. We sell at wholesale. It's always been that way. Farmers are some of the most frugal people on the planet. They're extremely smart too. And we will manage to work through this, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes people go broke and it's not a good thing. But what the consumer has to remember is that farmers are not setting the prices. So when that box of Wheaties or cornflakes goes up in the supermarket, it's not because of us. In July of 2020, urea fertilizer was $200 per ton. By February, the February we just came out of, it was more than $600 a ton, tripled in cost. Experts estimate that without fertilizer, we would lose 50% of our food supply. Fertilizer is absolutely necessary. It's critical for plant growth. If farmers don't get it, they're not going to be able to grow the crops we need to eat. It's common knowledge among agriculturalists that soil health depends on three vital macronutrients found in fertilizers, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. These macronutrients, they leave the soil as they feed growing plants. Farmers must replenish the soil to keep it fertile. Several factors have caused the cost of fertilizer to go up, including tariffs, global unrest, and high corn prices. Corn requires fertilizer, and as more farmers turn to growing corn to capture the high commodity price, It's driving global demand for more fertilizer. It's a serious situation because a big amount of macronutrients come from offshore, from either Canada, Russia, or the Middle East, and we've got to be careful in what long-term supply issues look like. Like most farmers in the last hundred years, we are interested in the longevity of our soil. So we're not going to steal fertilizer from the dirt and not replenish it. Campbell Farms and fertilizers, mostly corn and soybeans, own between nine to 10,000 acres a year. That's a bunch of land, including some of his own land and some contract work. A year ago, Campbell bought nitrous and fertilizer for 30 cents a, a unit. Today, it's over a dollar a unit, more than three times more. That's a big investment. If it's a dollar unit on a corn plant, you probably need to apply 220 pounds of nitrogen. We've gone from $65 to $220 on a per acre basis. The difference is $155 an acre. Multiplied by 10,000 acres, Campbell would be paying an additional $1.5 million this season if he had not bought his fertilizer in advance. Many farmers buy fertilizer in the fall for fall application or to capture a lower seasonal price. Maximizing yield 
is not just about farmers earning more. It's a key to global food security. More farmers are producing the world's food. Between 2001 and 2016, here in the United States, we lost 11 million acres of farmland to development. Development, you know, real estate development. With the average age of the U.S. farmer at 57, farmland will be lost as they retire. We have data showing 336 million acres of farmland is going to change hands over the next 15 years. That's something we're really concerned about. Don Bucklow, spokesman for the Farmland Information Center. With the change of hands, what is known as who is going to operate it? Retiring farmers sometimes pass their land on to another farmer or a developer. As farmland shrinks, U.S. and world populations grow. Census data shows the population in the U.S. has increased from 151 million in 1950 to 331 million in 2020. Less land to feed more people. What does that mean? Inflation. Inflation. We could go on and on and on. But folks, it's not. The price hikes that we're experiencing are not on the producers. It's on the chain in between the producers and the grocery store shelves or you put in a gas nozzle in your fine-looking car. It's all that in-between stuff. Who determines that? Our government. Our government. This government has the ability right now today to drive the cost of gasoline at the pump. If you're paying $4 a gallon now, let's just Let's just talk about that. If they would today, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell you this story. I'm gonna let you hear the story from some real experts. If you've wondered what's going on in the oil industry, and if it's true what Joe Biden is telling everybody, oh, we gotta stop these evil oil companies from raising the prices. It's their fault, it's their fault. It's not nothing we did. You wanna get the facts? Listen closely to this. But Tim, uh, let me, since I end with you, I want to begin with you on this argument that's out there. And I, I worry that it gets traction if people don't challenge it. And this popular notion that you guys are, or the industry itself is responsible for the high prices we are seeing. I mean, that, that's just not the case. Uh, but it's, it's very hard to fight that, especially when you have the powers that be that don't want to take any of the blame themselves. So what do you do to challenge it? And the reality is, is look, the Biden administration and, their, and its allies in Congress did nothing to address this crisis as it was unfolding while we were warning them of that until it comes to a complete head. And, and in fact, they actually were accelerating the crisis. And so when it when all comes to a head, what they trot out some moldy old ideas from the 70s with regards to windfall profits tax or price gouging. And I tell Senator Sanders, those those enriching those those investors, those are pension funds, and those are the small investors who've invested through mutual funds in the in the oil and gas industry. He needs to be careful about who he's worried about being in, enriching. I'm curious as to how you work with an administration, though, that has already said we're not for uh, opening up Keystone or even uh, expanding domestic oil production, points the finger back at you guys to say uh, there are a lot of unused contracts and leases on land. Uh, and if you were so hot to, 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 to take advantage of that, you would, and you're not. What do you say? 
you know, oil and natural gas is the backbone of our economy. And President Trump recognized that early on in his uh, run for presidency. And he made our country, America, the world's largest producer of oil and natural gas. This president could change the uh, price of gas tomorrow if he would come to the podium and announce that his his administration is changing direction. He's directing his federal agencies to work with industry, approve permits, approve pipeline projects, uh, urging the financial sector to invest in oil and gas uh, and grow production in America. That is a huge problem that we're having in North Dakota, trying to get uh, Wall Street and investors who are being told every day not to invest in fossil fuels. That is limiting our ability to grow. And this is a big, uh, it's taken a long time to get here. We're you know, about 15 months for this administration to watch U.S.'s oil and gas production decline. We're not going to turn around overnight, but they can have an impact tomorrow if they change the direction of this country. It's fixable. Uh, we can make the cleanest barrel of, of oil in the world, in North Dakota, in the Bakken, and we can grow our production in America to offset Russian uh, oil production. So it can happen. It's just that there's a constant diatribe almost wanting energy prices to be high for the talking points you saw earlier from the Democratic Party. But the, the real strategy seems to be, and I'll pick up this point with you, Tim, uh, just not to focus on fossil fuels at all. Um, the push right now, because of these higher prices to electric vehicles, which, of course, is, is good news uh, for, for environmentalists because they want us off the stuff that you're touting. Um, so how do you change minds or can you? That is a challenge that uh, we have in trying to, to help scope this narrative. And the reality is, is what they're proposing just isn't grounded in reality. Look, we want to meet them on common ground. Uh, that was the purpose of our, our message to the administration last week is there's common ground which we can meet on. But the first thing you have to do is stop treating the U.S. oil and gas industry as if it, it is an, an enemy to the American people. For whatever reason, Venezuelan crude in their mind is better than Wyoming crude or North Dakota crude. And, th and that is just a, a, a false narrative that we are struggling to change. We've got 4,600 permits that could be approved today. Uh, we're waiting on additional pr uh, approval from the administration to get our infrastructure built. For an, in for an administration that so, uh, emphasizes infrastructure so heavily, pipeline infrastructure is as important as any other road or bridge. The other thing that they could do, though, is send a clear message to Wall Street, which is uh, it is okay to invest in the oil and gas industry in the United States. They've got to stop sending nominees to Congress who are openly hostile to the industry. They've got to pull back some of these rules that they're putting out coming out of the SEC and, and labor and others, essentially trying to debank industry. And in doing so, we'll be able to, to bridge that transition. Look, we all want to get there eventually, but we'll be able to bridge that transition, but it isn't going to happen tomorrow despite their best wishes. This is happening because of the policies of this administration. There can be no credible argument that that is not the case. Listen, folks, what do you think Donald Trump did when he took over the 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? What do you think he did that caused our energy industry to go to the point that it made us energy independent by October of 2020. It hadn't been energy independent for decades. What did he do? It doesn't take a brain surgeon just to go back and look at the economical financial processes that went into us getting to that situation. And what did he do? The first thing he did was he started promoting. He started aggressively asking these big companies to get more aggressive 
and production of energy. Two reasons. He wanted to get away from being reliant upon overseas operators because they have unilateral control of setting prices. He wanted us to not only become energy independent, he wanted us to become aggressive and create good economical energy for our friends and neighbors overseas. It wasn't just to make money. It was to save you and I money, but to also create a a scenario where the people in Russia, as an example, or OPEC, they couldn't hold our fellow countries hostage, forcing them arbitrarily to just pay more to them when they are just doing it to make more money or to restrict the number of, of gallons of oil that were being passed around the world. They wanted to control the whole thing. They would use it to their advantage. And you can stop that. That's what Trump did. And he removed 90% of the egregious policies and regulations that the Obama administration had put on the fossil fuel industry. And of course, they, in the name of, you know, climate change, they did everything. They did whatever they wanted And when you ask them about the reasoning, what did they tell you? It's to protect our climate. It's to keep us from losing our world by the end of the century. They want to maintain that three quarters of a degree. That's our target. Everything we're doing is to reduce the average world temperature by three quarters of a degree by the end of this century. And to do that, even if we can do it, would cost trillions and trillions of dollars. There's no way around that, folks. That's the life in which we live. That's why you're paying $4 plus for gas at the pump, as we all are. So if the federal government's not going to do anything about it, we got to do it. Well, Texas has stepped up to it. Texas state agencies may no longer invest funds in companies that boycott oil and gas companies. As of March 16th, Texas Comptroller Glenn Heger had written to 19 major international investment firms like J.P. Morgan, Credit Suisse, BlackRock, asking them to clarify their policies on fossil fuel investments. Companies, he gave them 60 days to clarify their position on fossil fuel companies. Any company that fails to reply will be assumed to be boycotting oil and gas companies and added to a final list While climate issues are very important, Higar told the NDT that we need to have companies be more accountable and have them acknowledge that petroleum-based fossil fuels is still an important part of the economy and will be for a long time. Being the ninth largest economy in the world as a state alone, now he's in Texas, he believes that Texas's stance on fossil fuels will be able to influence, influence behavior and companies will continue to invest and realize that at least energy production in Texas is an extremely important part in not just the state economy, the national economy, but the global economy too. He said that while these companies push net zero and other environmental, social, and governance policies, they also tell Texas and other energy states that they're committed to the fossil fuel sector 
It's time for these companies to come clean, stop the big lie, and realize they can't have it both ways. What's the difference between the Trump administration and the Biden administration? Donald Trump weighed into every part of the fossil fuel industry, the solar energy industry, the electric energy. He weighed into it, wind energy. He learned all about it from the bottom up. This guy, first of all, he doesn't have the mental capacity to do that, but he has no desire to do it. No government run by Democrats in my lifetime did we have anybody at the top that was willing to do that. They wanted to stay up at the top and just tread water and spin, spin, spin and get more authoritarian with their policies. We, we have today one of the most authoritarian leaders of any country on the planet. Now, certainly he falls down the line, the pecking order, rake, rating those. He's way below the likes of Xi Jinping in China, Kim Jong-un in North Korea, of course, Vladimir Putin in Russia. But all these things that Joe Biden is doing and all these things he's not doing that the law says he should do, and he just blows his nose at it, That's what an authoritarian leader does. Everybody in the energy industry, everybody in the food industry, they're all looking at Washington, D.C. They're not going to invest millions and millions of dollars when at just any moment, Joe Biden is likely to, with his pen, shut down an entire industry, which is exactly what he's done with this fossil fuel industry attack that he has mastered since the day he took office. And anybody that tells you otherwise is lying to you folks. So there is a toll for all of these egregious actions taken by Joe Biden. Grinnell College did a national poll, released their findings yesterday And that poll found that Joe Biden's approval rating was all the way down at 34%. Only 34% of adults in the U.S. approve of Biden's performance, while a majority, 52%, disapproved. 14% said they were not sure how they felt about his job performance. His approval was down further when compared to the October poll that asked the same questions. The October poll found that only 37% approved of his performance as president, half disapproved. When asked about COVID-19, only 47% approved of the way he was handling it. 44% disapproved, 9% were not sure. In that October poll, 46% approved, 44% disapproved. About the economy, only 31% they approve of the way he's handling it while a large majority, 57%, said they disapproved. There was 13% who said they were not sure. His poll numbers are far worse than they were in October. 36% approval, 53% disapproval. Inflation continues to skyrocket, hitting a four-decade high. Gas prices have gone up dramatically. Despite the facts, the Biden administration is trying to blame everyone Blaming everyone in the world, not just in the nation, but in the world. Blaming everybody, like Russian President Vladimir Putin, even coining the term Putin's 
price hikes. He also got bad marks on handling the Russian invasion into Ukraine. Only 37% approved of how he's dealt with that compared to the 48% who disapproved. 14% said they weren't sure. It just gets worse and worse every day. And this guy, he just, he doesn't see it. They don't tell him about it. I don't know what the deal is. But he refuses to recognize all of these things he's doing or all of these things he's not doing are flying in the face of the American populace. They don't like it. They don't want it. And they want it gone. And still, Joe Biden every day continues down the road towards disaster and death basically to come at the hands of his policies. And it seems like he just doesn't care. And yeah, we have a war going on in Ukraine. We have a despot that's over there and he's sending his minions in there and slaughtering thousands of Ukrainian civilians. Yeah, there are some members of uh, the military in Ukraine that are dying at the hands of the, of the uh, Ukrainians, the Russians, I mean, and the vice versa. The stats on the losses that have occurred to Putin's Russian military are staggering. You don't hear about those. We've got those for you. We're going to take a look-see at what's going on in Ukraine today. You don't want to miss it. Duncan is putting a whole new spin on pumpkin at Duncan with our new pumpkin cream cold brew. Smooth, bold, cold brew topped with velvety pumpkin cream cold foam made with cinnamon and nutmeg spices. And there's more pumpkin for you to love, like the delicious fall classic, our pumpkin spice signature latte. Rich espresso topped with whipped cream, caramel drizzle, and cinnamon sugar. That's how we pumpkin at Duncan. Sip into the fall season with the new pumpkin cream cold brew or pumpkin spice signature latte. America runs on Duncan. Price of participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusions apply. I'm Papa John, pizza maker. The quality of every ingredient is important to me. Like the sweet, juicy pineapple and pulled ham hock that refreshes a pizza classic. Introducing our new premium Hawaiian, another Papa John's original. Like all our pizzas, it comes with Papa's quality guarantee. Try something new with a third off your order. Better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. Few things bring as much joy as the delicious taste of Coca-Cola. Like your first time camping or falling in love on a blind date. And now, our new Coke bottles are sip-sized and made from 100% recycled materials. So every bottle can live on to create more memories. That's endlessly refreshing. Coca-Cola. Bottles are made from 100% recycled materials excluding cap and label. Enjoy the great taste of Coca-Cola in a new sip-sized bottle that's made of 100% recycled materials. Are you sure we should be out here? It's pretty cloudy. Come on, that'll pass. Really? I don't know. Yeah, That's just, just swing. I'm holding swing. a... Swing! <sighs> Bob? Whoa. Looks like someone could have used Yahoo OneSearch on his mobile phone. Try Yahoo OneSearch and get news, sports, even weather. Get better results. Text weather and your zip code to 92466. Be a better golfer. Yahoo! Standard carrier text messaging rates apply. In a world of weapons-grade stupidity, your defense is the truth. TNN, the Truth News Network. Well, just before we uh, we go to Ukraine, something was just released that I think it'll blow everybody's mind. 
the State Department is being sued by a government watchdog group after the department said they would not be able to fulfill a document's request, a document's request involving presidential climate envoy John Kerry's office until after the next presidential election in 2024. Protect the Public's Trust, that's PPT, a government watchdog, filed a transparency suit against the State Department yesterday after the department said they wouldn't be able to fulfill this FOIA request on Kerry's office until November 18th, 2024. Does that sound a little bit interesting? That would be two weeks after the election, the presidential election in 2024. That's crazy, folks. That's crazy. This wokeism has just gone berserk. And we've got to get away from this. We just have to stop this. And it's not just at the top. All of this lunacy leaks out of the White House and it goes down through every department of the government. They're taking all their cues from the White House, not legally, the U.S. Congress. It's amazing this is being allowed to happen. Oh my gosh. Let's go to Ukraine. NATO leaders are meeting today in Brussels. You know that our our leader is over there and he's standing in the gap for everybody that is under the guise of Vladimir Putin. We hit the one-month mark of the battle in Ukraine. NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg says they all have the same goal in NATO. We're determined to continue to impose costs on Russia to bring about the end of this war. Biden, of course, is there. Speaking on Wednesday, Stoltenberg said the alliance is going to agree to major increases of troops in Europe's eastern flank. Biden's also going to meet with the G7 nations and address the European Union in Brussels before he flies on to Poland on Friday. NATO has 140,000 troops in the region. And they've done that because the Russian invasion of Ukraine begins. And, you know, you've got all these NATO countries that are just to the west of the border of Ukraine. You know, Poland and nations up from there. NATO and partners around the world are united in condemning and standing up to Russia. That's Justin Trudeau, Canadian Prime Minister said. But also being there to support the Ukrainians as they stand and fight for the values that underpin all of our democracies. Here's why I wanted to bring you this story. 40,000 Russian troops, 40,000, it's documented, have been killed, have been injured, have been captured, or they've just simply gone missing. (laughs) Gone missing. That's just crazy. That's according to a NATO story which says of that number between 7,000 and 15,000 troops are dead. Now when asked from some international news networks, the Kremlin, they just refused to disclose their official numbers. A spokesperson says releasing them is the Ministry of Defense's exclusive prerogative. 40,000 folks, do you know what number that is of their fighting force? They have 2,000 members, 20, excuse me, 200,000 members 
in the military, across the whole spectrum of Russian military. 40%. That's 20% of their fighting force are out of action. They're either deserted, they've been killed, or they're missing. On the other side, at least 264 Ukrainian civilians are dead in Kiev alone. The city's mayor added more than 300 people have sustained injuries. 80 billions in Kiev have been destroyed. Before the war, Kiev was home to roughly 3 million people. Yep, the Ukrainians, they're really giving it to the Russians. This just released, Ukraine has destroyed a huge Russian ship. And that's just days after the Russian, their state media department filmed it unloading reinforcements at a captured port as Putin's army continues to suffer punishing losses at the hand of Kiev's men. So the the Ukrainian Navy said early yesterday that it scored a direct hit on the Orsk, O-R-S-K, which is a 370-foot alligator-class tank carrier. It was sitting at anchor in the captured port of Berdangst in the south of Ukraine. A bunch of photos and videos showed black smoke rising from the port as one ship at the harbor in flames while another two sailed away, one of which also appeared to be damaged. Just three days before the strike, Russian state media filmed the Ortsk at the port unloading armored vehicles, which it said it would reinforce troops with in nearby Mariupol, promoting speculation that Ukraine could use the video to target the vessel. Well, guess what? They did it. Interesting. They're not laying down, folks. They took back yesterday one of the towns, one of the cities that Russia had taken over. Ukrainian soldiers on the ground actually took it back. Zelensky, Ukrainian president, urged Western nations that are in Brussels today. He told them, please take steps to help Kiev fight Russia's invasion. As an unprecedented one-day trio of NATO, G7, and EU summits got underway. While leaders promised to step up and support Ukraine, those European Union Democrats, diplomats, played down expectations of any major new sanctions on Russia. NATO Secretary Stoltenberg repeated the alliance will not send troops or planes to Ukraine. Biden and world leaders have opened the first in a trio of summits in Russia focused on pressuring Russia to end its war in Ukraine. Listen, folks, these meetings, when it comes to Ukraine, they're meaningless. These people have already made it clear they're not going to do anything unless it's kind of like the bully in the the schoolyard. He takes his foot and rubs it in the dirt and said, cross that line. You cross that line. I'm going to knock you out. Their line in the dirt, NATO's line in the dirt, is that if he does anything, if Putin does anything that impacts any NATO nation, even Poland, which is right next to Ukraine, they're saying, we're going to take really critical, serious actions against you. But they keep saying, we're never going to go to a no-fly zone. 
that would be the same thing as going head-to-head in battle on a battlefield against Russia, and that would mean World War III. Look, do you remember before this all began? For several months, like three months, Putin started amassing soldiers on the Ukrainian border. We knew it. When asked over and over and over again, Joe Biden would say, oh, if they do anything, they're going to pay a terrible price. And then when he was asked, well, why don't you go ahead and sanction him? From the top down, from the White House down in his administration, every person when asked that would say, you don't do sanctions until after they do something. And then you do sanctions to get them to reverse what they were doing that was bad and you didn't like what they did. I'm not a military genius. But let me ask you this. If the sanctions they have put on Putin and the ones added to the ones that are already on there that they're saying they're going to put on, oh, these are horrible. These are egregious. Well, you remember what he told us when he put the sanctions on finally after, only after the Ukrainian invasion started, the Russians came over. He put his sanctions on and he was asked that day. They didn't seem very stiff to me. I can tell you that much. And people in the White House press briefing room didn't think so either. They asked, why didn't you just do something really, really strong? Well, these are really, really strong. And the president said, but we're going to have to wait like 30 days. That should be sufficient to stop them. Yesterday was 30 days. <laughs> they have done anything but stop. I think you've got to agree if you're, if you're uh, objectively minded. And they're only getting stiffer and stiffer. Well, he says, we're going to put some more on him. <laughs> Big deal, right? Big deal. So Russian President Vladimir Putin's special presidential representative, Anatoly Zhubas, resigned yesterday. That's according to top Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov. Zhubai resigned himself, but whether he left the country or not, this is his own business. Earlier Wednesday, Ruslan Eldergrev, Putin's special envoy for climate, confirmed anonymous reports that Zhubai stepped down the highest-profile Russian official to do so since the start of this conflict. This happening, folks, it just rings a bell over there. There are people in the military, people in the government. They don't like what's going on, and I think they see something in Vladimir Putin as being dangerous and not just dangerous to their foreign foes like the Ukrainian people, but dangerous even to the Russian citizens. They don't like it, and they're not hanging around for it. Back to immigration. Yeah, we're talking Ukraine. We're not talking about Mexico or Central America. No, we're talking about Ukraine. Joe Biden is opening our doors to 100,000 Ukrainian migrants and refugees alongside the massive inflow through our other illegal and legal routes combined. It's not clear what legal path these refugees will take. Officials said some might be welcomed under the U.S.'s formal refugee program. Others may be given visas or be granted humanitarian parole, which is a form of entry that's given most times to people fleeing violence or war in countries around the world. I think all these Ukrainians would fit in that. A senior administration official said special efforts were being made to expand and develop new programs 
with a focus on welcoming Ukrainians who have family members here. The plan would allow vulnerable Ukrainians, here we go, we got to segment out pieces of the society, those sections that we think deserve special treatment. It would allow vulnerable Ukrainians, specifically activists, journalists, and those who are part of the LGBT community to safely enter the U.S., even if it's just temporarily. It would also expedite the reunification of Ukraines with U.S.-based family members. Officials are inviting these migrants from Ukraine, even as they are also urging other Ukraine people to stay and fight Russia. Now, give me an option. You know, fight the war or get a free pass like the Afghanistan people did. They get flown to the U.S., they get put someplace in a hotel where they're fed, they get spending money, and eventually they're going to get a job, a place to live somewhere else at U.S. taxpayer expense. Which one are you going to pick? That's going on. There, we're, we're, only, we're, only, we're about half full, half through the process of getting to the big events of the day. I've never in my lifetime seen so much news break out on a daily basis as we're seeing now. We got more. We got more that's really important, so don't go anywhere. Real truth, real news, TNN, the Truth News Network. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for the $3.99 six-inch sub of the day. How do you want it? Secret DJ set. At a retirement home? Weird, I like it. DJ sandwich in the house. What did he say? Italian BMT $3.99. I called the EMT? Turkey breast $3.99. How much? $3.99, $3.99. Bingo! Time of participating shops. Prices and subs included may vary. Additional charge for extras plus tax. No additional discounts or coupons applied. Join a community of online learning and find your bright future at the American Women's College of Bay Path University. Getting your college education doesn't necessarily make it so you have different self-worth or you mean more. There's so many different roads you can take. But if you have the feeling that you want it, go get it. The American Women's College is supportive and kind. And what you've created has changed lives. And I'm so grateful that I can say I've been part of it. Enrolling now for September and November at baypath.edu slash future. See the bold new expression of sporty style. Hear the amazing quietness of a truly luxurious cabin. Feel the exceptional horsepower and amazing torque and experience greater acceleration than ever before. Behold, the most powerful sedan in its class. The new Toyota Camry. Real power, absolute performance. Discover the new Camry at toyota.com.my. in this conversation about Ukraine? What about the nuclear deal? You know, the Iran-Russian-United States nuclear deal. Where is that? Why isn't it made a priority, folks? We're talking about Russia. We're talking about the country on Earth that has almost as many nukes as we do. The difference is we both have cognitive disabled presidents. 
We have Joe Biden. They have Vladimir Putin. But when it comes to war, when it comes to finally pushing the nuclear button to defeat your foes, I'm pretty sure that Vladimir Putin is the guy that we need to really make sure he doesn't have that chance. So Stuart Varney, Fox News, the Brit, I love I love his voice, I love his accent, but I really love the way he takes objective opinions when he weighs in on political matters. He asked the same question. What about the nuclear deal? I must admit to being exasperated by the president's response to two very important issues. I don't understand why he won't drill for our own oil. And I don't understand why he wants to let the Iranians get a nuke. There's news on both issues, and I still don't get it. America's top banker, Jamie Dimon, told the president face-to-face, we need a Marshall Plan to produce more of our own energy. He wants leadership from the federal government, not roadblocks. It was the American Marshall Plan that rebuilt Europe after World War II. Dimon wants to rebuild our energy production. Why, oh why, won't the president do it? Next question. Why is the president so determined to do a nuke deal with the Iranians? We are told a deal is imminent. Why are we doing this? A deal lets Russia build a nuclear power plant in Iran. It gives the Russians much of Iran's enriched uranium. It gives the Iranians tens of billions of dollars to finance terrorism, and it poses a threat to Israel's existence, not to mention thoroughly annoying our allies in Saudi Arabia. The New York Times, repeat, the New York Times columnist Brett Stevens says this, a new Iran deal leaves leaves us meeker and weaker. Why won't we drill? Why give the mullahs a nuke? I just don't get it. That's going to happen. You realize that. If we let them develop, continue to develop their uh, own nuclear energy, they're going to weaponize it, and they're going to put it on the tip of ICBM missiles that have the capacity to fire on and destroy Israel and also hit the United States. Unanswered questions. That's what we're dealing with a bunch from this administration. You know, another biggie in the room is Hunter Biden and his laptop. Bunch of news has come out that just really makes this look like it is a real critical problem from Joe Biden. Our president is being implicated day after day after day in more wrongdoing at the hands of a bunch of people, some of them that we're actually fighting against now in our assistance to Ukraine, a bunch of Russian oligarchs. They have something on Joe Biden. They do. And this Hunter Biden thing is going to impact Joe Biden. It may not be until he leaves office, but investigations, especially if the House control turns over two Republicans, are going to be ramped up very, very quickly. Want to hear the latest on the Hunter Biden laptop situation? Hunter Biden, the son of Joe Biden, had a laptop. That laptop, well, it went missing. Once it was found, it showed a lobbying operation that showed that Hunter Biden was the beneficiary, obviously, of the relationship that his father had in government. And this was, of course, a story that was denied, not allowed to be talked about. Well, the New York Times, they did a story following up on all of this and surprise, surprise, now that it all doesn't matter, have now confirmed that all of it was true. But there's a bit of gaslighting going on here and I know you've heard that term a lot, but basically it's when somebody's bullshitting. Now, Juan Williams is a lefty commentator on Fox News and he said this on the weekend. 
No, but I, th I think there's a larger context here, which is that what was this about? What does it prove? Nobody said it wasn't true. That what was said was that you can't authenticate it. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. Plenty of people said that it wasn't true. And in fact, if it was anything, it was Russian disinformation. It was lies put out by the Kremlin. This is exactly what the political establishment via things like Politico reported. And they said on television month after month. Really fishy story. The Post claimed that the emails were found on a laptop computer that was brought to a repair shop in Delaware in the spring of 2019. The FBI is now investigating whether those alleged Hunter Biden emails are actually connected to a larger foreign intelligence operation. They may be related to a foreign intelligence operation. Foreign intelligence operation. Foreign intelligence. Foreign intelligence. Foreign intelligence operation. For all we know, these emails are made up. The information found on the laptop may be part of a Russian disinformation campaign. Part of a Russian uh, disinformation uh, effort. Described by many intelligence experts as having hallmarks. All the hallmark, hallmarks, rather. All the hallmarks of a Russian. Or Russian. Russian disinformation. Russian disinformation. Disinformation campaign. And one of the ways they were able to do that was because 50 former members of the intelligence community decided to sign a letter saying, oh, it's absolute BS. Well, those people lied. And well done to the New York Post for standing up, publishing the story, and calling those liars out. More in a second. Isn't it interesting? We have to go to Australia and get a news agency in Australia, Sky News, to actually come out and say it was all lies. Not that there were Hunter Laptop issues that implicated Joe Biden, but the cover-up that was created by the far left and those that are in the tank for Joe Biden, and then perpetrated and kept being mentioned and talked about by our mainstream media. That's a wrap on day Thursday. Thank you so much for being here. I have the, I have that uh, cryptocurrency thing. We'll get into that first thing tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock here at TNN Live. When I was a little boy, the devil called my name. Say now, who do, who do you think you're fooling? I'm a consecrated boy. Singer in Sunday choir.
She rocked me like 